the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Not only is it the word to stand on for life, and I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, but this is our last show of 2017, the last opportunity to call in and get that question or situations you're dealing with, uh, get some answers or get some direction. Um, We'd love to be able to do that. It has been a great year here for the program, and we thank you very much. I truly appreciate um, you taking the time to tune in. Um, some of you do every day. Others of you let me know that you do it as often as you can be by a radio. We're really, really thrilled that you take the time to listen. And I want to thank you for a really, really great new year, at least in so or a great uh, past year, at least in so far as the radio program goes. I really and truly am grateful. Uh, to God for all of you. I pray for you often. Uh, This is the Friday edition of the show. Um, Not only is this the last show of the year, but but I have two more messages to give this year. Tonight we're going to be doing uh, the completion of Acts chapter 9 here at Calvary Chapel at 7 o'clock. If you are interested, you can watch at calvarysa.com. You know, the last uh, two weeks, Christmas and New Year's, uh, the crowds are always real small and people are busy doing other things, and we understand that, but if if only a few people would show, I, I would want to teach it just the same way I would if there was tens of thousands of people listening. So tonight at calvarysa.com, you can listen live, or you can take the time to visit us uh, tonight, uh, we'll have plenty of room. Acts chapter 9. Uh, and then on Sunday, I get the privilege of doing a New Year's message. Uh, very atypical for me. I don't do topical messages. Uh, but this is a New Year's message uh, out of the Old Testament. On Sundays, we're always New Testament here. But but uh, this Sunday from Nehemiah chapter 3, um, the Lord, I think, has something for those of us who are at Calvary Chapel. And maybe if you are listening uh, via live stream or our website, you can find that the Lord has something for you as well. We just want 2018 to be our best and most Jesus year ever. Um, I love that we're in the book of Acts because the book of Acts instructs us how to do that. Uh, but so too will Nehemiah chapter 3 this coming Sunday. Where, wherever you go to church, uh, make the last Sunday of the year in church Make it a Sunday where you offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. Where you get up and you say, okay, Lord, what about me and what about today? Maybe it'll change the way you do church for the rest of your lives. But if you make yourself available, if you'll be the one to minister to the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused, God will do marvelous things to your life. And one uh, thing that we can resolve, Paul and I were talking about her functional word of the year has been resolve. Uh, We can resolve to be God's servant rather than expect to be served. We can be God's servant And I promise you, as I did yesterday, that that will change the rest of your life. So have a happy new year. 
Um, it's been a great year for us. We thank you very, very much for tuning in. Let me give you phone numbers for your live calls and questions. We've had a bunch of good questions sent in, but we'd prefer to have your live calls. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car on this cold Friday, uh, it is the safest way to do it using the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, In the process, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. The first question today is from our email inbox from John. uh, And he asks, is there any biblical precedent for child baptism? The answer, John, is no. Uh, Child baptism, infant baptism, is uh, uh, based on traditions uh, from different sects or or religious groups from... from, um, the very beginning of time in the church, um, but there is no biblical, biblical precedent. In fact, I would say just the opposite is true, that infant baptism contradicts what the Bible says. The Bible says we've got to come to Jesus. We can't deal with original sin, as many of the religious traditions teach, through infant baptism. To be baptized, to become a believer in Jesus Christ, one has to make a conscious decision of their own free will to die to themselves and live a new life for Jesus Christ. And it's following that conversion that we see baptism. There's no baptism of children in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, of course, we knew that that Jewish male babies were circumcised on the eighth day. Um, But that was a different tradition Uh, today. While there are groups that um, really hold on uh, to infant baptism, Lutherans and uh, Catholics and um, Anglicans and, and others. Uh, there's no biblical basis whatsoever for doing it, and it's just not something we should do. Uh, every person is going to have to make their own decision. It can't be made by parents. It can't be made by church officials. Certainly there's nothing uh, efficacious about being dunked in water. Um, the only reason that has value is we do it as a public profession of our faith. But in order for that public profession to have any value or any merit at all, John, then there has to be um, a decision that's made. Uh, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. An infant is, is incapable of making those choices. Again, I understand the religious traditions and why they hold on to it. I once lived with a family who uh, was Church of Christ, and they believed that if you were baptized, you were saved, period, you were in, you couldn't lose your salvation. Um, And both of her grown children never wanted anything to do with God as adults. And yet she was confident, falsely so, but she was confident because they were baptized in the church, they were saved. And it just isn't true. Sadly, it just isn't true. So, John, that, uh, it's the best answer I can give you to your question. Here is another question from our email inbox from Chris. He said, would you recommend Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven? Chris, no, I wouldn't recommend it. Now, I don't think it's harmful, um, but, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it. You know, here's one of the things that, that is difficult for me. I think uh, Randy's book is uh, nearly 500 pages. How do you get 500 pages about heaven when the scriptures declare very little about heaven? There's actually more written about the millennial reign of Christ on earth, which is not heaven. It's a great and just time here on earth, but it isn't heaven. Um, the information the, the Bible gives us about heaven is enough. We don't need to extrapolate from that all these things and come up with our own conclusions. Um, uh, it, it just it makes no sense to me. Again, I don't think the book is harmful. I am certain that the, the author's intent uh, was noble and genuine. Um, I don't know why anybody would buy it. 
All the information that we need about heaven is found in the Word of God, the Bible. And if God thought we needed more, He would have given us more. And you know, I think there's some element of awe and surprise that God reserves. We know that heaven is greater than anything that we can possibly imagine, yet somebody will take a nearly 500-page book and imagine it out for us. I I think that doesn't uh, help anybody in any fashion or sense. So uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but again, I don't think it's destructive. Uh, I think there's a lot of presuppositions made in the book. Now, I've not read the book, not all of it, but I think there are presuppositions made in the book that um, are inconsistent with what we're told. Um, um, As one example, I know, um, there's uh, the, the idea that heaven is going to be the same for us as it is here, only with perfection, whatever that means. But, but we know that's not going to be true. It's a whole new order. The old order will have passed away. And I, I just think it gives people the wrong idea about what heaven is or what heaven is supposed to be. I think we can all agree, Chris, that heaven is going to be great it's going to be better than we can possibly imagine. Um, I also think we can all agree, at least those of us who are believers listening to this program, I think we can believe that the only way to heaven is by being born again uh, in Jesus Christ. Peter said there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. But how do you describe using human words that which is impossibly glorious? So I wouldn't recommend it. Um, Hope that helps. 340-9585 for your calls. It's the last day of the year uh, for the program that you can call. Here's a question from Javier from our mobile app. Javier asked, did Jesus really have the potential to sin? Javier, he did not have the potential to sin. The theological doctrine here is the peccability or on the negative side, the impeccability of Jesus. And the question is simply, could Jesus have sinned? And if he could have, what are the theological or the doctrinal ramifications of that? Well, Jesus, you see, had no sin nature, none whatsoever. And so the temptation that he encountered, remember, he encountered temptation directly from the devil himself. But Jesus just responded by, it is written, and he would quote scripture. Now, here's how he could do it. Sin, while it tempts us, didn't tempt Jesus. This is always confusing to people, and people will ask me, what did you mean by that? But, but try to understand this, Javier. Jesus was tempted by sin, but he was not tempted to sin. When sin came across Jesus' path. There was no attraction. You know, when you and I get tempted because we're flesh, we have a sin nature for sure. Um, You know, we think, well, maybe if I just did it this once, oh, I would love to do that, or oh, that would be fun, or that would feel good. But not for Jesus. Jesus had one desire, and that was to please his Father. Three times we have the Father declaring for him, and this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what we need to understand, Javier, is that if Jesus could have sinned, we all would be lost. That's why his Father could not be human, because the seed of Adam, the posterity from Adam, would have been passed through the Father. That's why the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she was found to be with child. So that means Jesus was born without a sin nature that was passed through the gene of Adam. Adam. So he couldn't have sinned. If he could have sinned, then we would all be lost. I think it's a very important doctrine. I think we need to understand it. I think our biggest objection to it is the Bible saying Jesus was tempted in all ways by sin as we are tempted. I'll go so far as to say he was tempted to a greater degree, but withstood it always. And never once did he think, oh, that might be fun. Oh, that might be good. Oh, you almost got me there, Satan. Never once. Because the only thing that appealed to Jesus was 
doing his Father's will. My meat, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of the one who sent me. And anything and everything that would have distracted him from that, well, it was just something he couldn't consider. Sin nature makes a big difference, Javier. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Here is a question from Rich from our email inbox. Um, how do we properly interpret the parables of Jesus? Now, Rich, I don't have time on a program like this to give you a hermeneutic on um, interpreting parables, but let me say a couple of things. First and foremost, we look for the main meaning of the parable. The plain and the main meaning. I think we get into trouble with parables when we try to make them say too much. You know, I'll give you one example, the ten virgins, five had oil in their lamp and five didn't. So the five that didn't tried to go buy oil and people say, well, you know, that's just people try to work their way into heaven uh, using fleshly uh, techniques to, to, to get the Holy Spirit. Um, the pearl of great prices, another parable. People say, well, well, the, the, the merchant sold everything he had to buy the pearl of great price. So we can't be the pearl of great price. Uh, Jesus is the pearl. Well, we can't buy anything from Jesus. So we need to take the plain meaning. Now, one thing I can tell you, Rich, is if you don't understand the parable of the sower, it is the foundational parable. If you don't understand that parable, you won't understand any of them. That's what Jesus himself said to his own disciples. And as he was talking to his disciples, he said, how can you understand any parable if you don't understand this? That's why Jesus gave us the definition. There's also something important in interpreting the parables. It's called expositional constancy. And what that means is that the symbols in the parables always mean the same thing. Now, birds are always evil, so you don't get messed up in the parable of the, the mustard seed growing into a, an abnormally large uh, a tree. Uh, the birds are evil. They're not good things that the birds are finding shelter in the branches. So uh, keep that expositional constancy. Then you can interpret the parables. Finally, and this is the most important thing with the parables, uh, usually, in fact, um, in, in all cases, they're only saying one thing. There's one main message. And to get too far off of that main message means you're going to find yourself in all kinds of interpretation trouble. You're going to come up with wrong doctrine. Um, parables are illustrations of truth. They're not Jesus trying to hide the truth, as is wrongly taught by so many. Every time Jesus told a parable, people got mad at him because they understood exactly what he was saying. So he spoke in illustrations using the sermon illustrations that were available to him in his day. We'd look up and he would see in the parable of the sower, he would see a farmer in the distance planting his field. He would see the birds flying over and picking up the seed that was scattered on the ground. And so he would use those illustrations much the same way that preachers today use illustrations. But they have one basic meaning, and trying to go beyond those two things is um, uh, always, always a, a fruitless endeavor. So the way you interpret them is to read them in context. What is Jesus saying? To whom is he speaking? And what's the message that he's trying to communicate? And that way we then can interpret it. One more thing on the parable of the sower. You know, uh, we look at the, the fields, and this is an example of when we can get in trouble by reading way too much into the parable. Uh, we can get into the uh, parable of the sower and say, well, you know, the seed that was scattered generously fell on four types of soil. Those four types of soil represent human hearts, which, which in symbolism they do. However... People will say the first soil, people weren't saved. Second soil, they weren't saved. The third soil, we don't know if the people were saved. The fourth soil, for sure, they were saved. Um, but, but that's to miss the point of the parable. It's not about human hearts. It's about sowing seed. It's about spreading the word, sharing the gospel. 
And Rich, this isn't what you ask, but that's where so many of us get in trouble, you know. We want to interpret the parables, but we can take that, that foundational parable. We won't share Jesus with people because it makes us uncomfortable. And it's about scattering soil, or seed rather, everywhere we go. What's the seed? Jesus said it's the Word of God. So our job is to declare the Word, to declare the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we miss that important part of that parable, then we run into all kinds of difficulties. So read them, study them, prayerfully consider them, take time with them, read them repetitively. And I believe with all of my heart, Rich, the Holy Spirit will give you um, the light that you need uh, regarding what Jesus is saying in the parable. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question anonymously. Uh, he or she says, it seems to most people that Christianity is intolerant. Can we make more, uh, can we make Christianity more tolerant of other positions? Uh, anonymous, no, we can't. Now, let me dispel one myth. Of course, Christianity is exclusive. Of course, it's not a wide gate. Jesus said that's the road uh, that leads to destruction. Um, but but every religion is exclusive. Every religion believes that they have the truth. It's not just Christianity. Uh, Islam, um, um, Buddhism, um, Hinduism, um, even inside the professing church, people that claim to be Christians who are Catholics, they've got the truth. Lutherans, they've got the truth. That's why the Bible and believing in the Bible rather than in church tradition is so important. But it is and always will be exclusive. Now, if you're talking about intolerant to sin, yes, we are intolerant to sin. We're supposed to be. We're to pursue holiness. We're to do so with all of the strength that is within us. And we're to tell people if they are engaged in sin that what they're doing is wrong. Now, if we're accompanying that by sharing the gospel, then we're doing so in love. And that's what we're instructed to do. Paul says, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. That's Philemon, verse 6. But if you're talking in terms of tolerance, well, maybe other people from other religions are going to, if they're good people, if they're sincere, are going to get to heaven. That's not being tolerant. That's being unloving. If you're talking about people that are living sinful lifestyles and the world says well you're just bigoted or you're intolerant of other people well no we're so tolerant we want them in heaven we want to include them but in order for them to get to heaven we've got to tell them the truth Jesus said ours is a faith of offense the gospel offends why are we trying so hard not to offend. Now, that should never be our intent. But everybody who shares the gospel ought to expect to be received in a negative sense, in a negative light. Jesus said he's come to divide families. Fathers will turn against sons and mothers against their daughters. Why? Because when you stand for the truth, people are offended. But what we've got to do is tell the truth in love, and then we don't need to worry at all about what other people think. God knows your heart. You know your heart. So what if the whole world says you're intolerant? You see, Anonymous, there's just no way that we can make our faith palatable to someone who wants to sin. There's no way that we can be genuine and sincere. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Love must be sincere. There's no way we can be genuinely sincere if we give anybody false hope. So when people come to us and they talk about, well, don't you think all roads lead to the same destination? No. And as you can imagine, in, in my life with Christ, I've been called intolerant more times than I can even remember. 
there's almost never a time, whether it's a radio program or a, a, a Bible study, where somebody doesn't get angry with me. But here's the thing. If they hang around, they know I love them. And they know what my motive is. And some of those people keep coming back. And Jesus eventually wins them over. So don't even try to make what we believe as Christians more palatable to unbelievers. It's always going to offend them. I think maybe we need a little more offense. We're coming to the end of the first half of the program. I'd love your calls and questions for our final half hour of the year. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. Let me close this half by saying we are to be salt and light. We all know what it's like to be in a really, really dark room and then suddenly the lights come on. It blinds you. It hurts. We know what happens when you pour salt into an open wound. It hurts. It festers, but it hurts. We have to remember our job is to declare the glorious person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's God the Son. We've got 30 minutes left in 2017, 340-9585 for your live calls. We will be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half, the last half of the year of the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron. Hey, just a quick uh, programming note. Uh, we will not be live on the air Monday. Studios are going to be closed on New Year's Day. Um, Probably just as good for me because I hear it's going to be super, super cold. But uh, we'll be back live on the air, Lord willing, on Tuesday of next week. Again, have a wonderful New Year's. Have a safe New Year's. And um, tell somebody about Jesus. Here's a question that was just called into the studio from Anonymous. Can you explain the scripture found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, uh, that thou mayest see. Uh, I, I can't explain this. Um, of course, these are Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation. Um, um, wrote seven letters representing all of the churches um, in Revelation. Um, let me get there again. Hold on just a moment, please. My computer's not. Uh, let me take another question and I'll get to that, okay? Right in just a minute. My computer's not uh, not helping out. Um, here's Ahim calling from San Antonio, Texas. Ahim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon. I, I am not from San Antonio. I, I'm uh, new here. Okay. Well, welcome. Uh, uh, hi. Thank you. I noticed a big sign in San Antonio. It says, uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand by Cornerstone Church. You, mm -hmm. Are you familiar with, with that sign? I'm not familiar with the sign, but I'm familiar with the church. I investigated the church. I'm a new Christian, former Muslim. And uh, oh, Mr. Sure. Hagee, he was married, and he left his wife for the secretary, and then he left that one for another secretary. And he talks about repentance on television, and he's got the big sign in San Antonio. I see the man is a hypocrite. And he's apologizing to the Catholic Church, and he's a big friend with Paul Crouch, the homosexual. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> Can you tell me? 
Well, uh, yeah, Ahim, let me do the best I can. I'm going to talk about what I know and not what I don't know about. I don't know any details about uh, uh, Pastor Hagee's um, uh, marriages. I, I know that the woman he is married to is not his first wife, and I certainly have heard the accusations. But I think the best thing for all of us uh, when we hear um, accusations is just to discount them. Uh, with John Hagee, uh, one thing that we can do is we can look at uh, the evidence of what he teaches. John Hagee is a false teacher. Uh, every time I say that, people get so angry. He's got a huge church, and he's a national figure. He's a faith and prosperity teacher. Um, uh, he lives a fairly extravagant life. Uh, his salaries, uh, he and his wife's were detailed uh, quite extensively on the front page of the San Antonio Express News a few years ago. Um, but the thing that is most concerning about John Hagee is uh, actually two things. One, uh, his preoccupation with money and the prosperity gospel. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. Um, the second thing is his insistence that Jews, uh, he is a huge friend to Israel. He, he collects a lot of money for Israel and, and Jewish causes. Uh, but uh, in part, he does it on the basis that Jews don't need Jesus in order to get to heaven, which is, is uh, heresy. Um, he, he believes and teaches that they're under different covenants, so he has uh, always taken a non-proselytizing stance with Jews, which makes uh, Paul's writings nonsensical. Uh, so I think there's just so many problems doctrinally uh, with with John Hagee's church that, that um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to find any other kinds of problems um, is he a hypocrite? That's between him and the Lord. I don't know him. Uh, I've never met him face to face. But I have been distressed in my heart, Ahim, um, for many, many years. I've been in San Antonio now for almost 23 years. Uh, and I've been distressed in my heart uh, from the very, very beginning. And when people come to our church and they say they're from that church, I get really excited because what we're going to do is we're going to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ, but the, this emphasis on money um, um, is is uh, misrepresenting Christ so, so badly. So uh, th- that's, that's, I don't want to go any further. Let me say this to you, Ahim. Uh, I'm thrilled that you've come out of Islam, uh, I'm, uh, that, that you're a new Christian. I want you to know um, that you're at the most exciting time of your life. That you're walking through a door that that has such wonder and such glory on the other side of it that you can't even begin to imagine the work that God is going to do. So um, rather than worrying about bad teachers being hypocrites or rather than listening to what bad teachers are saying, find a good Bible teacher. Go to a church where the Bible is being taught verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Get the passage in context and how it applies to your life and let God blow your mind, Ahim. He's got so much in store for you, you can't even begin to imagine. So enjoy, enjoy what God is going to do. I'm thrilled for you. I'd love for you to uh, stay in touch from time to time. Just let us know how you're doing. And I will be praying for you. Thank you, Ahim. Appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585. Uh, the anonymous question uh, was from Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. It was the letter to the church at Laodicea. Um, um, to understand the verse that you asked me about, uh, Anonymous, you've got to understand what Jesus was addressing, the problems in Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was a wealthy church in an important city. Uh, They worshipped many other gods. Among uh, them, the principal god was the god of healing, Asclepios. Um, One of the reasons I just talked about the faith and prosperity movement, we still are worshipping in many professing churches, Asclepios. Um, And in this letter, there are no compliments. There's no record of persecution, as, as was the case with some of the other churches. And the reason is simple. Jesus wasn't allowed in this church. Now, Laodicea, and this is where the, I counsel you to buy from me, these things come in. 
Laodicea was vulnerable to attack from enemies because of their poor water supply. They depended on outside sources, thus they were vulnerable to siege. If, if an enemy would have come and cut off their supplies, they would have died of thirst. And they decided, Laodicea did, that they were going to resolve all threats by compromise. And they were rich enough to accommodate the needs and wants of any and every enemy. Uh, they believed that compromise and not fighting, not standing firm for doctrine was the best approach, at least for them. Um, and Laodicea is uh, a really, really tragic um, letter. Uh, when Jesus identifies himself as the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, he's taking authority over this church. He's just saying, look, if you say you belong to me, I'm in charge. And there are three major problems in this church in Laodicea. And by the way, I think these three major problems are existent, in fact, plentiful in American churches, churches in the West together. Jesus says to them, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. And then he tells them, uh, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus is talking to a church of professing Christians, and Jesus basically says, you make me sick. This, this word, spit you out of my mouth, is, is a very strong word. Our English word that would be more accurate would be vomit. And Jesus is saying here that the uncommitted church at Laodicea is making him feel nauseous. The source of their condition was that they think they're rich. He says in verse 17, I, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. This church and the individual Christians in it were deceived. They're, they're, they're self-deceived, and that's what makes it even harder. Laodicea, as I said, was a wealthy city. In fact, the wealthiest of all the seven to whom Jesus wrote in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. From the outside looking in, we would look at Laodicea and see that it was thriving. The people appeared to have everything uh, in terms of material need that they, they, they could possibly want. Uh, if Laodicea were a church today, it would have a 3,000-seat sanctuary built on beautiful, well-groomed grounds. Uh, there would be lots of people coming to that church. They'd talk about how great that church is. Here's the problem. They would never be challenged by the Word of God. They'd never be forced to deal with sin or issues like whether or not they should be committed to their faith in Christ. Laodicea was a church where the people told the preachers what to preach. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The people then would never be asked to serve or sacrifice because it's too uncomfortable. And that's why they make Jesus sick. They say they're rich, but listen to what Jesus says, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What a difference between you say and when Jesus says to them, you are and I think that's what Jesus is saying to a whole bunch of us. One of my favorite commentators, a man who's with the Lord now, his name is John Stott. He says about the church in the West, our Christianity today is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. I would add to John Stott's statement that we appear to be quite content in that behavior. So that's why the verse you asked about matters so much. Jesus gives us counsel. I counsel you to buy from me, and I read it before. Their problem with spiritual blindness, Jesus saying all the things that you're hoping in are of no value. What I'm counseling you to do, the gold refined in the fire, that's pursuing holiness. Then we can become rich. We think we're rich, but then we can become rich. White clothes speaks of purity. And purity will help us to cover our shameful nakedness. And the salve that they put in their eyes, one of the products that Laodicea derived its wealth from was from they had this, this salve that was sold all over the ancient world that was, would, would help their eyes. Jesus saying, well, use your own product to be able to see. Again, this salve was a huge wealth of the city, a huge source, rather, of the city's wealth. So that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, you, you think you're okay. I'm telling you you're not okay. 
And because you're not okay, I'm counseling you to buy those things. So that's what that means, Anonymous. Thank you for calling the question into the show. Here's a question from Donald. I appreciate this question a lot, Donald. It says, what about or what should street evangelism, street witnessing look like in an environment where people don't want to hear about Jesus? Donald, we've just had this conversation in our church again recently. Uh, uh, We've always had a pretty active street witnessing ministry here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, And um, um, one of the the people, the men that headed it up, had to move. So it's been fairly inactive for some time when we get ready to do it again in the spring when the weather gets better. Uh, We have another man who's stepping up and and, um, taking responsibility for the ministry. We had a long talk about this. Because the one thing that, that I don't want is people standing on benches shouting at people. Um, Jesus was nice. Jesus was attractive. And too often we think street witnessing is getting in people's faces and entering into debates and arguments with them, doing what we can to offend them because they offend us. But that's not what street witnessing or evangelism should look like. It should be conversational. We should talk to people as the Lord leads, uh, asking people, if we can share Jesus with them. But but we have to be kind. We have to be loving. Turn or burn evangelism is never what we're told in the Bible to do. We go to talk people. We take Jesus to people. And too many who consider themselves gifted with this gift of evangelism or street preaching uh, they can't wait to get in people's face and offend them. And that's just not something that rightly represents the Lord. So, Donald, I think it should look nice. It should look kind. It should look loving. It should never be confrontational. We should be the first to back away if somebody wants to confront us. What we believe isn't about what people can or cannot do. Our job is to present a message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead proving that he was not only the son of God but God the son and trusting then that the Holy Spirit rather than our arguments you know one of the things I think Donald that has hurt the church uh, in these days of modern technology uh, on the internet is blogs and apologetics ministry self-proclaimed apologists who disagree with everybody who doesn't agree with everything they agree with and I think we've we've become sort of like the nagging wife of Proverbs. We've just become noise. Paul says, it doesn't matter how much we know, if we don't have love, we're, we're just making noise. So I think street evangelism should be conversational. I think it needs to be helpful. I think often, at least in the way I do it, is is asking people if they have any need for prayer or a bunch of crazy Christians out here and if there's anything that you need prayer for we'd love the opportunity to pray for you you might be surprised Donald but I've had very very few people ever say no or say they didn't need prayer for anything and that gives you an opportunity to pray for them and in the prayer you say amen you can say so are you a Christian are you born again And those doors open. I think you can look at people, conversational evangelism, just look at people and sort of read them. And their ball caps they're wearing, the t-shirts they're wearing, or something will tell you a little bit about them, something that can strike your interest, and you can begin a conversation. But for me, it always seems to work best when I'm just asking people, how can I pray for you? They know I care. I think the Holy Spirit helps communicating that message. But I think that's what it ought to look like. And I can only say this, at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, it will never again look anything like um, what we're most accustomed to, street preachers shouting and condemning people, um, telling people to repent. Um, People walking around who don't know Jesus don't know they need to repent. And shouting at them isn't going to get the desired effect. Take a quick story, Donald, and I'll go on to the next question. We were out uh, when we first got here, not, uh, I mean, a long time ago. 
uh, I had a, a man in the church who said he was really gifted as a street preacher and he wanted to get some people together to go out. I went to Alamo Plaza. And um, so I said, well, let's go. I mean, I just want to check it out, see what he was doing, what, what he thought it looked like. And he was standing on a bench. He had a wonderful voice. He could shout forever and be heard. If I tried to shout, nobody would hear me standing right next to me. But I was so uncomfortable with his shouting at people. Whether it was Even if he was just reading the Bible or then interpreting it or whatever, he was just shouting at people. And at one point, I was looking at the crowd. I was standing in, in the group. People were starting to gather a little bit. And uh, I, I saw a group of kids maybe in their from 10 to 15 years of age, a couple different families of kids, and they're with their parents, and they started to come over to see what this street preacher was talking about. And one of the kids' mothers come and grabbed them and said, no, no, those are Jehovah's Witnesses, get away. And I was so torn up. My heart was broken. We had the best message in the world, and she mistook us for a cult. And I purposed in my heart then and there that we would never again be involved in something like that. So, Donald, that's the best I can do to answer your question. Uh, I probably gave you more than you wanted, but that's why we, uh, we've we just been talking about it, so it was time for question. Um, here's an anonymous question. Is it sin to have doubts? Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, doubts are, are the purview of the enemy, of our flesh, of the world that we live in. So having doubt is not a sin. What does turn into sin is not finding answers to the doubts you have. I hope that makes sense. You know, a lot of people are always looking. They're always asking the same questions, and they set themselves up to be hammered by the devil. Um, but when you have doubts, find the answers. And then hold on to those answers. The next time those same doubts come, and they will, then you have the answer. You know how to respond. Just like Jesus, you can say, no, it is written. So it's not a sin to have doubts. Again, many of those doubts come from an outside source. But I think it causes a great deal of difficulty and pain when, in fact, we don't look for the answers to those doubts. So don't let the enemy condemn you just because you have doubts. He's the source of those doubts. We're going to encounter situations in our lives that we've never come up against, and we don't have the answers. Of course, there's going to be the opportunity to bring doubt. But that's why we open our Bibles and we dig in and find out answers. And once you have an answer, never let go of it. This is sort of off the beaten path of this question, but I think it's tangentially related. One of the things that I find happening with a lot of Christians is that they're, especially in the age of the Internet, there's so much information out there that people will, will doubt what they believe. Here's something that I hope everybody remembers. If you want 2018 to be a great year, remember this. When you find what's true, that never changes. Now, sometimes people present themselves as they're changing theology or the changing doctrine is, is a matter of growing in Christ. That's not what growing in Christ is all about. If something was true 10 years ago, it's true today. And when we change and we start reevaluating what's true, then those are problems caused by doubts. So what we have to do is we have to hold firm in what's true and then we take Paul's advice and grow in the knowledge of Christ and in the knowledge of his will for our lives. There's never any um, motivation in the Bible just to grow in knowledge, but to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, to grow in the knowledge of his will for your life. And to do that, you have to hold on to what's true. Don't let go of what's always been true. Just use what's true as a platform to grow more knowledge about Jesus. Honestly, I, I can't think of one doctrinal position that I've changed in my almost 23 years here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 
I held on to what's true. I've grown in the things that are true. But there's nothing, there's not one thing that I've experienced that I changed my mind on. And especially for a pastor, I think that's important. Your people can't follow you if you don't know where you're going. So we hold on to what's true and we grow in the knowledge of truth. But we don't let go of something that's true, something that we're sure of for something we're not sure of. And I think that happens way, way, way too much. So I hope that answers your question. We're inside two minutes for the program. I've got a a quick one here I can answer, I think, from Jennifer. Uh, She says, why is it that only Christianity claims to be the exclusive truth? Uh, Jennifer, I answered this, I think, a little bit earlier uh, in the program. Every religion claims exclusivity. Every religion. We can even get farther down the road into denominations or sects, and they claim they've got a corner on truth. So we're walking, of course, we're walking with what we think is true, and if it's true, by definition, anything that contradicts it can't be true if, if what we believe is true. So Christianity is exclusively true because that's what Jesus declared, and then that's what was proven as he validated that with his death and resurrection from the dead. So it's not only Christianity claims to be exclusively true. Every religion does. So Jennifer, I hope that answers your question. You've been listening to a year's worth of the word to stand on for life. Again, I want to tell you thank you. I so enjoy uh, the opportunity to do this. I am blessed beyond all men that you take the time to tune in and listen. So thank you. Have a wonderful new year. Uh, Make 2018 your most Jesus year ever. And may the Lord bless you. One last reminder, we won't be live on Monday, New Year's Day. We'll be back live on the air Tuesday at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful holiday weekend at church. See you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.